If it's not good enough, it's not good enough. You know, drop the ego, work harder. One of my favorite phrases is people by people, not ideas. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to part two of the World of Work podcast together with Gareth Worthington. In this episode, we continue to talk about, you know, why settle for only one profession if you can embrace multiple ones at the same time. And Gareth is a great example of that. I mean, very polyhedric background and professional, trained marine biologist, PhD in endocrinology, recently completed an EMBA. His background is in medical affairs and in medical writing. He's also, amongst other things, author of science fiction books. And the conversation continues as we talk about how does someone know whether what they're passionate about is a hobby or whether it can actually turn into a profession. So let's tune into the conversation. Circumstance is, is different, right? It doesn't help. Not everyone has the ability to do, be able to be as diverse. It's, it's very circumstance dependent, right? Um, I'm yeah. lucky in the, in the profession I have. I earn enough that I, I can do my other um, yeah. hobbies. Some people have to do two jobs to support their family and they don't have the extra time. So, you know, it's, it's very right. dependent. I didn't always, I had to work to get where I, where I am. You know, I, I grew up very poor, I'm in a poor, poor part of the UK. So it took a long time for me to get to the point in my life that I could do everything that I want to do. But now I'm mm -hmm. here, I'm making sure I do it. Mm -hmm. so. And you used the word hobby just a second ago. Um, yeah. and, and so I do want to talk about that a second because there are many people out there that have many interests, many talents, many passions, many hobbies. So they could be writers, they could be painters, they could be X number of things, N number of things. What do you think? And how do you know, by the way? So what do you think makes the difference between being quote unquote hobbyist, amateur in a given field? Yeah could be in writing and painting, etc., and then making that shift into saying, uh-uh, now I'm going to move and pivot from taking it as a hobby to taking it as, as a profession. Because I think quite a few folks can resonate with, you know, everything that you're, you're, you're saying and we're talking about. But many have a doubt and maybe say, you know, am I even good enough to take it to that next level? What is it for you that makes that difference between? It depends what your end goal is. So um, for many people, it's money. And for me, it's not. So and I think that's the, the difference. So um, I have my primary job and that allows me to live. Um, and that's the difference, live, you know, work to live, not live to work. Um, and, you know, then someone, a lot of people want to become a writer because they want to make money from it. I want to, and I want to, I became a writer because I wanted to leave something behind. So no one's going to get to the, you know, when I die, no one's going to say he was an amazing pharma exec. No one's going to care what I did for a job. You know, I love my job mm -hmm. and I help people and we help people with cancer and that's amazing. Mm -hmm. But me as an individual, no one's going to say he was a great pharma exec. That's just not what they're going to say. But they'll say I'm a good dad or they'll say anything else. Um, and my books for me are something that I get to, are like a legacy when I'm gone my kids get to take them and say, hey, dad, I wrote this book. And their grandkids get to read them and understand their great granddad a little bit and, you know, whatever. It's just so for me, it's about how seriously you take something. A hobby is I like to play a bit of football, you know, whereas taking it that step further is 
I want to be the best I can be at that thing, then it becomes, then it's not a hobby anymore. Then it's more pushing me in the direction of not necessarily a profession, but taking things a lot more seriously. You can go professional and, and then make money from it if that's what you want to do. Um, but mm -hmm. it's not my end goal. Mm -hmm. Also, because it's a very difficult industry to, to yeah. anyway, make, yeah, make yeah, yeah. money in. I mean, I don't, I don't know too much about publishing, but if I look into the entertainment in general uh, or, or music, it's a very crowded space. Yeah, it is. As yeah. well. I mean, everybody's writing. By the way, everybody's writing nowadays. <laughs> um, so, and that's, yeah, yeah. And, and that's the thing, right? So, I mean, <laughs> Amazon changed the, the face of publishing forever because yes. it introduced the ability to self-publish very easily. And so you have a swathe of people who love to write and that's the, they love to do it. They're not very good, you know, um, uh, and, they, and they get to write and put a book out and that's great. Um, but they, they then, you know, sell those books either for free, they give them away for free, or they sell them at 99 cents. And that's, there's thousands, it's like 5 million books on Amazon. So then I spend two years writing a book and I pay for a developmental editor and then, you know, a, a line editor and a copy editor and a proofreader and design two years of my life and then someone expects me to sell it for 99 cents you know and that's not this that's not the not the same no. so it's a very difficult industry to be in so i've taken money out of the equation i just i mean it's legacy i enjoy it i love to do it leave something behind and i want but to be the best i can be at it but you go nonetheless through the full uh, process so you you do work with copy editors and, and, and yeah, other absolutely. folks in your team to, to really make that book um, the best come to be. life. Yeah. Okay. So that, that is already taking it beyond, I would say, the yeah. the amateur and the hobby because that's, for me, already a little bit the, the tipping point. It's not yeah. even so much, let's say, the revenue that comes into it because that's so difficult to predict. Yeah. I, I mean, all of a sudden, you could become like a top star uh, o overnight, yeah. uh, which I do wish you probably already are, by the way. <laughs> Really not, but that's okay. <laughs> but but if that's that's what you you wish to do, absolutely. But I think what's what also shifts the amateur to the professional is this um, taking it to a level where you're competing, quote unquote, in the big league. You know, with with other authors who yeah, you know, do this from A to Z following the full-fledged professional process. Like in music, it would be, you know, going to a studio, working with a producer, working with top-notch musicians, going to a mastering uh, studio professionally, and then, you know, coming up, having an agent or somebody to support you in the marketing and stuff like that. Yeah, it's just about, it's about competing, competing with yourself, doing better than last time. So my writing has vastly improved from my very first book to now in the space of, you know, six years or so. Um, mm -hmm. Greatly improved. I work with some good editors who show me better ways of doing things, better ways of writing. It's about being better, um, and that makes you a professional. Being better yeah. every day. Yeah. My co my co-author and I, we have a you know we work together, and we're kind of brutal. We just say that doesn't work. It's rubbish. Get rid of it. Cut it. You know, and um, especially writers can get quite precious about what they write. They want to. They love their paragraph, and I want to keep my paragraph. And you know, <laughs> I think Stephen King said, "Kill your darlings." You know, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. You spend three hours on it. I don't care. It doesn't work. Get rid of it. Um, 
So, and how do you manage the frustrations? Because I, I, I know a little bit about the creative process, so it can be a little bit frustrating. Not like you, like you spent a lot of time on thinking of the paragraph, the, the chapter, or the idea, but then having to ditch it uh, or, or start over again. How do you deal with that? You got to get rid of ego, and that's been one of the good things <laughs> about working with Stu is this kind of like it just we say ego doesn't come into it. Our favorite, our favorite quote to each other is the facts don't care about your feelings, you know. Um, and so if it's not good enough, it's not good enough, you know, drop the ego, work harder, um, you know, and that's kind of how you got to do it. So it can be, it doesn't, it's not, you know, it's, it is hard. You do feel a bit gutted, but when you get to the other side of it, you realize that it really is better. It's really better that way. That, no. You know? I think that sense of self-realization is really very important. And, and I'm kind of wondering how that may inform your other professional side. You know, how, how these two that may seem very different uh, paradigms or these different, uh, and they are different professions, what's the red thread for you? Like, what's the, what's the connecting point, if at all? For, for me, people, and this is, this is not meant as a criticism, um, it's everybody does it, including myself, you can become quite myopic in a profession because you work in medical affairs, in pharma, 20 years, that's what you know, that's what you do. Um, what I see in many companies is they try and reform and they just look at themselves. What can we, how can we rehash this thing? Um, or they'll look to people that kind of do what they do as well. They'll look to another farm company and say, well, look what they're doing. Um, and a really good example where I, I changed that up is a few years ago, we had to change something very large in one of the companies I worked for. And I asked for money and I said, I'm gonna go away and I'm gonna go look at BMW. I'm going to look at IBM, at Apple, at um, Shell Oil. I want to understand how they do it. I don't want to look at my industry. I want to look at other people's industries. Mm -hmm. And you see a different mindset of, of things. It's a different way of thinking. And so I try and bring that always as much as I can into my, my daily profession because mm -hmm. sometimes it's good to be external. It's good to look outside um, and, and see what else that there is out there that you can pull in. And so yeah. that creativity does bleed in in some places yeah I, I, but i think we still have quite a way to go i kind of i kind of i kind of i kind of sense people are are readier than companies and uh, having been in the in the guts of an organization myself and, and i kind of know how that operates i do see that the intentions are there and they're actually very good intentions but sometimes it's it's just it, it, it's it's the change process is slow because the structure overall sometimes is so heavy that it does not allow enough room for experimenting on yeah. on different ways of thinking and looking. And then there are, there are, there are some other things too, I think, which are more linked to um, some some other organizational, um, let's say, dynamics that occur in, in inside companies. But I, you know, one of the things that are going to be part of the season, but also in general of this world of work is moving away from verticalities and the ways we we typically look at careers, which is by industrial sectors, it's vertical, right? Career ladders, we even use the word ladders, it's vertical. And the world is shifting into much more, you know, cross, uh, cross dimensions, cross disciplines. You may have Google that may be eating the lunch out of the pharma at some stage, just simply out yep. of the, the, the full data that they're getting, and they're also getting into that space. So technology is so disruptive that also these industries that are kind of like uh, 
a bit older and traditional, yeah. they're going to need to embrace a different way of looking at it and look into different professions yeah. as well. I mean, it, it also depends how things are pitched. So my one of my favorite phrases is people by people, not ideas. Absolutely. And so it's how you pitch. So, you know, in change management, um, you have to unfreeze an organization to get them to accept an idea and then refreeze at the other end with a new process. But you've got to you've got to take them along the journey. You can't just you might be really inspirational and know what you what needs to be done. But you can't just bomb drop it on somebody. It doesn't work like that. You have to bring them up to speed to your idea way of thinking. Um, and that applies in, in most things in career, um, you know, changes and, and doing multiple things, you know, convincing someone you can do something else. But you have to bring them along that journey. You can't just tell them. You know, mm-hmm. um, and that's mm-hmm. and you, that takes time and effort, and not everyone wants to put that time and effort in to, to do something like that. Yeah, and, and in some cases, it's worth that time and effort. In other cases, you may know upfront that you know yes. what it's not even worth it. Yeah, pick your battles, absolutely. Yeah, right. Choose the right ones. Yeah, um, and um, tell me another thing. If if you were to look into project like five, ten. Actually, no. If you, if you look at the generation of your kids as they're growing up, and, and it's going to be a very different world mm-hmm. when they hit the, wor- the, the, the market, the so-called market, what do you think is going to be the landscape, in, in your opinion, whether it's in the farm, in the industries that you know best, yeah. of course, or maybe also just in general? How do you, and what would you recommend to them, you know, uh, as, they, as they grow and become... Um, Again, I think it will be, the first thing will be what is, what's your driving force is always my first thing. You have to do what you do for a long time. Even if you do multiple things, you still have to mm-hmm. survive. So is your driving force money or is your driving force um, really super enjoying what you do? Rarely do the two things go hand in hand. I think that's a bit of a thing that's kind of cropped up. It's like people don't want to do jobs they don't like but they still want to do something and earn lots of money and those two things aren't aren't always you know compatible so find out what it is that drives you that makes you makes you happy um and then pick that road but it's going to change google is is now looking at not caring about college degrees they're looking at six month certificates right Mm -hmm. where it's more vocational i think the old university system is just that it's an old university system It, it applies to certain professions but for many, it doesn't. Um, mm. And vocational training on the job makes a lot of sense. Being in the sector that, of maintaining up-and-coming technologies is going to be huge. You know, it's like everyone thinks AI is going to take jobs away, but you need someone to run AI, program AI, do all those kinds of things. So, you know, um, that's definitely a, a sector to be in. Um, mm-hmm. It's. Uh, I read a lot of uh, Yuval Harari. Do you know Yuval Harari? Yes. So Sapiens and yes, Homo Deus yeah. and 21st and 21 Lessons. So I read a lot of that kind of stuff. And so the, the future is going to be going to be very different. I think that the issue I see in the <clears throat> COVID at the moment, I think as bad as it is, offers a very unique opportunity um, where, you know, people, I've seen people complain because the city centers of places are dying, the shops aren't open, you know, but the, what that's opening the door to is decentralized um, mm-hmm. you know, economy and all of the coffee shops and the places outside the city are doing much better. You know, mm-hmm. it's moving away from this old model of everyone's got to get on a train and travel two hours to go to the centre of London to do their job, to do, travel two hours back. You know, that's 
we've got this opportunity to change. The schooling system is based around parent nine to five workday. When all studies show kids don't learn that well at that time, particularly teenagers, you know, and so this is huge opportunity to change things, complete way of operating, but the establishment want to go back to the way things were. When can we get back to normal? Uh, mm-hmm. I just think we're, we're missing a beat. This is the place, the time to change, you mm-hmm. know? Um, so I think there will be some change in tech companies like Google and Amazon, you know, those forward thinkers, they'll be the ones that change it. Amazon's mm-hmm. going into healthcare, you know, they've got their, they're making their Yes, own, I um, saw that actually recently on the news. Yes, company, yes. You know, um, yes. so I think it'll be slower than we want, um, but it will, it will change. Definitely. And it's, it's super unpredictable too. So I think, um, you know, also to help people kind of uh, rebuild and I think redevelop a little bit the critical thinking skills that have been uh, put a bit to the side, I would say, in the sense we've been so busy in getting expert in something, in a certain domain, in a certain, um, yeah. you know, area that we've kind of forgotten as well to to use our brains and in our minds to think critically. Yeah. Does this make sense? Does this this does not make sense? How can I? Do I really need to learn this and know this as opposed to? Yeah. Maybe there's going to be a program, an AI program that's going to be much quicker than I am in processing this information. So uh, y- y- we talk a lot about programming and and programmers are having a great time nowadays i mean everybody's looking for them with different yeah. languages of programming yeah. but the future may have uh, you know these already machine learning capabilities of yeah. machines are able to kind of program themselves through their own uh, uh, algorithms you know it's kind of like they they can also learn so how can the human continue to stay relevant yeah and, and and I do think critical thinking, creativity, being able to connect the dots and being able to have this relational uh, aspect as well as a nomadic mindset of saying, you know what, today I'm this, tomorrow I can become yeah. something else. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in pharma, I'm part of a think tank um, group. Um, and, you know, there's a there's a big shift towards um, uh, patientless trials where AI yeah. will compete, compute um, how effective a drug's going to be based on, you know, thousands and thousands of other trials and data and understanding and the patient, right. you know, um, characteristics and the predictive model. And there's another doing this where they're running these AIs to see if they can get the same outcome as previous trials. And if they can, then there's a, the, the precedence for reducing the number of patients you have to expose to a, to a drug, um, you know, and that's huge. The that FDA are even looking at this, you know. Yes. So, that, that will happen. And, I'm, and probably animal testing too, no? Yeah. I would imagine. There must be some predictive models on that front that, you know, don't require uh, sacrificing. I'm sorry, but I have a particular view on that. But <laughs> testing drugs on, on animals, um, there's probably going to be a better, more effective way of doing that, which is just as safe and, and reliable, I would hope, right? Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, so a couple of more questions, if, if I may, Dr. Gareth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, the topics of your science fiction books, I mean, I'm kind of pivoting, and this is my curiosity. Sure. Um, also, the other questions, but I do think it's very much related into what we were talking about, the world of work, and kind of like shifting gears and, and thinking on this multiplicity of talents and how to change them into professions. Now, your your talents in writing and the science fiction part of it, 
how, how does that come to be? And, and, and I noticed some of your books, although I haven't bought them yet, but I promise I will by the time for the monster, that, that one. Sure. Uh, you, you also have quite a few female characters mm-hmm. in your books that are they're pretty, mm, like in this last one seems yeah. to be uh, a pretty assertive, let's yeah, put it this sure. way. <laughs> Strong personality. Sure. Tell me a little bit about I'm an Israeli soldier, yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so the themes we, particularly Stu and I, but and and but, you know my own, I tend to try and tackle topics that are um, poignant. Um, or mm. so, and it doesn't always get you good reviews. Some people really don't like it. Um, but like the Children of the Fifth Sun series are all based on um, alternate history. So there's a lot of holes in in our history um, that don't. We still don't understand yet. Um, there's a guy called Graham Hancock who writes a lot of his stuff. Fingerprints of the Gods is one of his books, yes. all about how um, you know certain things don't don't add up. So, Children of the, of the Fifth Son was about well, you know, there's uh, very shortly lots of things that add up in history. Um, you've got um, uh, on every oh. continent on on the planet, you've got a single myth called the Flood Myth. Uh, that yes. big flood came and destroyed civilization. Okay. Um, and on, on every continent, it's the same myth, and it's almost described the same way, that after the flood came a race of knowledge bringers, and they're always described the same way. They're pale, they're bearded, and they're from the sea. Um, and this is at a time when there was no intercontinental travel. It's really strange. It doesn't matter where you go, this, this, this myth exists. So I did a bunch of research, um, and it turns out, you know, that, that myth exists everywhere, but also that the translations are off. So bearded actually was a, was a mis, uh, mis um, translation of a Spanish word actually meant feathered. And so I looked at all these things and I looked at all of the drawings and everything. Of, and I, I, for the purposes of the book, I said, well, what if this race of knowledge bringers wasn't human? What if it was something that evolved elsewhere on earth? Um, and so the book is about that. It's about that they, they existed, we killed them off as humans, as we do, and then we find a corpse in Siberia, frozen, someone clones it, and then all hell breaks loose, and they're fighting over this. Um, mm-hmm. But at, So there's kind of that big action thing going over, over that, but at the core, the main character suffered a, a tragedy, he lost his wife and child, and it's about him getting over it and being manic depressive and suicidal, and how how he deals with that, and that's that's actually the, the story of the book. There's always mm-hmm. action over the top of it. Um, mm-hmm. In children, it takes death to reach a star. We wanted to explore science and religion. So I'm a scientist. I'm an atheist, and my friend Stu is is a Christian. He's from you know southern states of the USA, and we wanted to explore those two things and write two opposing characters and not answer a question, um, not provide the answer, but give enough um, debate in there about mm-hmm. what you know what does it mean? What is a soul? Does a person have a soul? Um, you know, and uh, I used quantum physics in the book to explain what a soul might be, and he uses he used religion for his character. Um, mm-hmm. And it won a bunch of awards. We went up against Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian. You know, um, and uh, so fantastic. It's always a it's always about character and dealing with things. Condition Black, the two characters in that one, my character is is autistic. <clears throat> my son's autistic, and I wanted to write a character not about autism, not a journey. But more just, this is a, this is a character. He happens to be autistic, you know, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. it. Um, and and Stu's character has got PTSD, and it's just about how they deal with 
all this action and you know science fiction and thriller whatever but it's just about how they as people deal with it mm-hmm. so it for me that's that's always the core it's it's the character the the base dealing with stuff we all have to deal with right so it's interesting it's like real life um if you will the common people characters so to speak projected into yeah a different reality yeah right yeah, yeah. um but 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 that's so yeah, that's so revealing that as much as the context around us may change and like Elon Musk wants us all to go to Mars and <laughs> and, and have human settlements there. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's still the human um, and, and, and uh, as fascinating as we are uh, and complex as we are. So it's nice to portray it and showcase it in, in different contexts because like this, it doesn't necessarily trigger other excuses yeah. uh, that it could be a political view or religious view or you know, contextualize the history or to current yeah. affairs. Uh, but then I, I, I think the, taking science fiction to that level, it helps to kind of, um, you know, as I said, detach it from yeah. any context that may or may not influence that individual's uh, existential uh, questions or dilemmas or even ways of being. I mean, science fiction is the way the general public get to view the future. So if you read, again, Yoga Harari, his book, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, he has a section dedicated to science fiction. And he says the, the issue is you get a lot of bad science fiction. That's why everyone thinks AI is going to take over the world and kill everybody. Um, whereas good science fiction is predictive. Um, and it tells you, gives you a window to what could be possible, what may happen, good or bad. Um, interestingly, It Takes Death to Reach a Star that we released in 2018 is about what happens after we ignore the rise of an antibacterial plague that wipes out most of humanity. And the things that have come true now in COVID times that we wrote about a few years ago are scary. Um, it's uh, it's scarily accurate. Um, the, we didn't, you know, we didn't expect that. Um, down to the tribalism of people. So a lot of dystopian stories have rich versus mm-hmm. poor. Um, and uh, ours isn't like that. Our poor people band together in tribes and don't like each other because that's how humans are. Yes. You know. Um, so yeah, it's definitely, it was weird to kind of be in this time now and thinking we wrote this a few years ago. How does it end? (laughs) (laughs) That's the question. What's, what's your ending? (laughs) Yeah. uh, Different, but, um, yeah. Uh, Okay. So I guess folks buy the book or, (laughs) and we're going to live through this COVID and see how this is going to end, but for sure it's going to end at some stage. Right. Um, a couple of last uh, thoughts, like, you know, what is, what are your, to get to know you a little bit better, what's your, if you want to share, right, your, your worst nightmare or your greatest hope and, and kind of like what's wowing you at the moment. That's, that's part of the wow tradition, actually asking guest speakers to tell them, you know, what's, because it's all about bringing the wow back to work. I mean, I've met so many people who yeah. are kind of like disengaged where they are at the moment yeah and and i'm like you know this you're spending so much time at work it's it's so important to bring that spark back so at least what's wowing you is is something that i I always find inspiring also for other folks Um, at work i would say it's you know we watch the the pharma industry and i know lots of people think it's an evil thing and there's lots of reasons for that some of them are historical and valid but we managed, they, you know, Pfizer managed to get a vaccine out inside nine months, you know? Um, and as a scientist and someone who's worked the bench and who knows how, this, how these things run and how long a trial takes, that was phenomenal. And that was really 
you know, that was impressive. It was crazy fast. Um, and uh, that's that's what happens when people put their minds together. And I imagine all the late nights that people work to make that happen and the data checks and the rigor that goes into a trial to make it, you know, um, safe and that we are happy to give it to human beings is is massive. Mm. Um, so that for me was a, was a huge wow. Um, I think that's, and that makes you glad yeah. about what you do, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think people tend to underestimate that, you know, the, the ones who are not necessarily in the industry or, or know how, how it operates and the whole supply of it. I mean, it's the yeah. whole supply chain process. To, I mean, from from production to getting those those vials where they need to be, it is massive undertaking, massive. Particularly for that vaccine, because it's got a minus 80 cold chain, or at least a very low temperature, minus 60, something minus 80. Um, and that didn't exist in large parts of the world. You have to create it. You know, that's a, that's a big deal. And, you know, they're doing their best. It's not perfect, but no. we had nothing. You know, we went from zero to 100 really fast. You know, yeah. I think there needs to be some appreciation for that, for sure. And we've got three of them coming up, right? We've got... So, 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 so that's pretty extraordinary, too. And, and I think there's been quite a few partnerships on the pharma side to, to make this happen, which is a great way of starting to kind of break those barriers a little bit and kind of say, you know, let's own this together as opposed to yeah. it's only our, let's say, um, property, so to speak, or patent. You know. Well, thank you very much, Gareth. It's been um, fantastic to talk to you. Happy to help. Happy to be here. And, uh, and to share your story. And um, looking forward maybe to the next time we'll talk more about your books. Who knows? When it becomes a TV series on Netflix. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Don't forget me. <laughs> I mean, don't forget the wow. Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Brad. Take good care. Bye.